You guys can grab a seat. I came to faith in Christ late in my life. Actually, it was late high school, early college is when I actually started following the Lord. And I think at that time I truly um, had believed that there, was, there were present-day implications or, or, or ways in which God is calling me to live today and that it wasn't just that I was following the Lord for the hopes that like someday when I die, I can go to heaven and be with the Lord and I don't have to worry about that whole scary looming thing there. But I just, I just kind of, I really believe that, but I, I had hoped and believed that, that following the Lord, that my life was more about living for him today and less about that insurance policy in, in the future. About seven years ago, I had a, an opportunity to, to confront that belief. Uh, I was getting ready for bed and I remember laying down and my heart was racing. I'm like 31-ish years old or whatever, and, and my heart's just racing so, so fast. Like, I've never, something I've never experienced before, like, like I've been sprinting. And I was like, man, I, and like, I, then you start thinking, like, am I having a heart attack? So then you start feeling like, do I have pain? You know, like you're starting to like do that mind thing. And I lean over to my wife. I'm like, hey, Jen, I, I think I'm having a heart attack. And she's like, oh, no, you're not. She rolls over and goes to sleep. And so she's, she's way more compassionate than the story sounds, but that's really what happened, okay? Um, and so she's like, no, you're fine, whatever. You're just, just think yourself out of it or whatever. And so it's like, okay, great. Well, then I start texting my friend who's an EMT, and I'm like, hey, what should my resting heart rate be? You know, and we're going back and forth. And he's like, that's, that's really high, Bren. Like, that's, that's kind of scary high. Like, you, aren't, you haven't done anything. You haven't drank caffeine. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm pretty much caffeinated just the way I live my life because I've got so much energy. I don't need caffeine. But he, uh, he says, you know, the only way we can really know is if you get checked out. And, and he's like, if you could get your blood pressure, we, like, the, if those numbers are off, then it's definitely something serious. Well, I was confronted right then and there with the fact that I was in ministry and I was poor and I wasn't about to play, pay an ER bill because it was like 9.30 at night. So I'm like, well, okay, do I, do I risk the heart attack or do I, you know, risk the, you know, seeming like being broke for the next 10 years to pay for an ER visit? And so I chose uh, poorly and chose to risk the heart attack. But I um, decided at some point, finally, I was like, I'm going to go somewhere. So I knocked my wife. I'm like, hey, honey, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere. I don't feel good. I don't think this is right. She's like, okay, you know, and rolls back to sleep. And so, um, again, way more compassionate than that sounds, I promise, okay? And so she, um, so I decide to drive myself instead of to the hospital. I'm like, oh, I'll go to primary health because my insurance covers that. And well, primary health closed. And so they were, they were closed. And so then I was at that moment where it's like my heart is racing. I don't feel good. I have like chest pain. And I'm like, well, I just need to get my blood pressure so I should go to the ER. Or the Walmart has blood pressure machines, right? So, 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 so I drove myself to Walmart at 11 p.m. And I go back to get the blood pressure machine. And I, I don't remember what the numbers were, but I did it a few times. And I texted my friend. He's like, those are perfectly normal, Brent. I, He's like, I still would recommend maybe you go to the hospital. Or, and I'm like, no, it's okay. And I remember it like in, in one fly swoop, it hit me. I sit, I'm sitting, I can still remember exactly where I was. And, you know, the, the typical people of Walmart were there at 11 p.m., right? Like they're just kind of roaming around, the ones that like hang out there or something. But either way, and, and I, remember, I remember I just start sobbing. I just start bawling. And I'm like, I, we have, I have a, a barely three-year-old daughter and a, not, a, just a newborn, and I— I'm like, I start bawling. I'm like, God, please, please don't take me. I want to I see him grow up. I want to see him get married. And I'm just like sobbing, like inconsolably on this blue metal bench in Walmart, like not wanting to die. And in that moment, like I look back at it, by the way, I went to the doctor. He scolded me the next day and said, panic attack is what it was. And you could go into heart failure. So he recommended I go to the hospital next time. Hasn't happened since, but, um, but I know what to do now. Um, anyway, uh, and I remember just being like, profoundly scared of death and not 
in the sense of fear that I was going to die, but fear of what I would miss out if I had died. And death is, is one of those incredibly sobering things, very focusing things. Like, I've had many friends that have experienced death lately, and, and death does, like, one profound thing. It, it focuses us very, very, very acutely. I've never, in fact, I've never met someone that, that knew that they were going to die or walked with someone that was dying, and their, their biggest pain or fear was what their social media page would look like after they were gone. They, they don't think about that. They don't really care about that. In fact, I've never really met anyone that, that, that really was worried about how much stuff they could still get before they died. In fact, it just focuses people. And it definitely, you know, people put their affairs in order and figure out what, what's going where and all that stuff. But, but ultimately, most people will, will look back on life and go, man, what did I experience? What was this all for? But, but more than anything, they're, they're laser focused on what's ahead. Right? The, 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 the questions and the life process and everyone kind of just starts focusing on what's ahead. And, and every single person that's ever experienced the, the loss of someone, it's excruciatingly painful, but it focuses everyone else on that same topic. Like, what would my life mean? What would, what would I look like? Or what, 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 what am I leaving behind? What is, what is the purpose? And all those kind of big, grand questions happen. And, and many of us deal with that in healthy ways. Others cope and, and deal with that unhealthy, but that's, that's not the point. Either way, when death is around we are confronted by what's really important to us. And as I came to the scripture today, I'll admit this confronted me very clearly, and I went right back to that blue bench in Walmart at 11 p.m. and realized very quickly that, that I had some things that were, that were out of line in my, in my life. I had some, some focuses that, that needed to be shifted, and my hope is the same would happen for you as well. Two weeks ago, so last week we had the Serve the City, and so thank you for, for serving, but two weeks ago, we, we were in Hebrews 9, and we talked about the, the, the truth and, and the reality that God, he, he saves us, but he doesn't just save us so that we can follow him, but he gives us a, a clear conscience. So he removes guilt and shame and allows us to, to, to be in the presence of God without feeling the guilt or the shame of our own sinfulness, instead being clothed in righteousness because of what Christ has done for us. And this is a continuation of that text where we are in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15. But this, this text specifically is just a continuation of Jesus being the high priest and how he's been, he's been comparing Old Covenant, Old Testament, with New Covenant and, and how the New Covenant is, is far superior to what God had done in the Old Covenant and how the Old Covenant was just a, a picture, a present, presentation pointing to the hope and the truth of the New Covenant in Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, just slip your hands up. The ushers will grab one for you as well. You're always welcome to look on an electronic device if you want. I'd love for you to read along with me. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28 is where we are today. But when Christ appeared, oops, that was 11. So going back further forward, therefore, again, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. He is Jesus. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For the ver when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. 
saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay, so this is him going into this kind of long buildup of, of one really big profound point, which is laying out exactly how the old covenant system worked. And again, he's talking about the, the, the sprinkling and the hyssop and all that stuff was a part of the cleanse, cleansing process that happened through the old covenantal system. And he's saying, this is how it happened. And then he uses, the ESV translates this word as for where a will is involved, or will of the testament. That, that word, just so you guys know, can be translated, it's the same Greek word for covenant as well. And so some of your versions will say where the covenant is, and, and others will say a will. And, and there's actually some, some trouble in, in both translations of this. There's probably a third way to really understand this because he says a couple things. One is a will, a living will, is something that we still do today. If you're going to die, this is kind of how you get things in order, and that will is then presented at death. So when I die, then whatever the will was in place, that, that is then put out on what I communicated. Wills can be done before someone dies. So, so that's where it's a little difficult here because it says only when, it's, when someone's dead will this will happen. The covenant's difficult because, because not every single covenant that God did was done with blood. And so, so both of these have, it kind of seems like it, it's, it's basically the point here is, is lost if we try to understand exactly which word it should be. But he's making the bigger point, which is there is an inheritance for those of us that follow Christ that comes through Christ's death. God's will, his, his inheritance, Ephesians 1 talks about every spiritual blessing that is ours, those that submit their lives to Christ, those that have been called and chosen by God, submitted to him as their Lord and Savior, you have an inheritance. And that inheritance is ours at the death of Christ. And so he's just using a, a language that, that kind of makes sense for the people as opposed to saying that God is trying to follow this specific system. That's not what's happening, but, but trying to relate what is, what is happening through Christ is that Ultimately, there's an inheritance that comes through death. That comes through death. And then he goes into this discussion about blood. And, and we have all sorts of covenants in the Scripture where we see blood happening. He goes specifically to the Mount Sinai with Moses when he comes down and he sprinkles the blood on the people and the altar and does all this stuff saying, here's the commandments, here's what, here's what God wants from you, and it's now been sealed with this blood of goats and calves. We see blood in the Passover back when the Israelites were enslaved by Egypt, we see the covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, where Abraham's like, how do I know that I will really be a, a, one of many great descendants? How will I know this for sure? And God puts Abraham in sleep after he puts animals, cuts them in half and faces them each other so the blood. And then the idea would be that he would walk through it saying that ultimately if he doesn't uphold this covenant, then the death that these animals felt would be on him. But the crazy thing is, is Abraham gets put to sleep and God passes through that. And says, not only will I take, take the punishment when you fail to walk through it, but also take the punishment if I fail. And Abraham never, ever goes through it. And so we see this blood. So, so why blood? I want to, again, we're not going to be able to talk entirely about it, but I want to at least highlight it a little bit. Blood shows up very, very early in scriptures. In fact, Genesis 3 is the first time we see it. We see that, we see that Adam and Eve have sinned. They've, they've, they've eaten from the tree of good and evil, and they did what the Lord had commanded them not to do. And in that moment, they all of a sudden realize that they're naked. And so they try to clothe themselves, cover themselves with fig leaves. And God, in, in 321, comes and he clothes them with an animal skin. 
Now, now don't miss that. Where did the animal skin come from? See, Adam and Eve saw their sinfulness. The nakedness is a picture of their sinfulness, and they were trying to hide that. But the fig leaves weren't going to do it. And so God took an innocent animal, had to kill that animal so that the skins could then clothe and cover the sinfulness of Adam and Eve. And so the very first time that death is brought in is through Adam and Eve's sin, and God uses death of an innocent to clothe a guilty. And we see in that very, very, very clearly, while it was the sin of Adam and Eve that introduced death into God's perfect creation, it was God who killed the animal to provide the covering for their sin. This shows that God's judgment of sin is death. We see that? This is the wages of, of sin is death. We see that in Romans. And this also shows God's justice and graciousness and mercy that he gave a substitutionary atonement. The life of an innocent animal paid for the sins of guilty Adam and Eve. God did for Adam and Eve what they could not do for themselves. So it takes innocence, death, to bring about life. We just talked about that on Resurrection Sunday and how, how important it is for us to see that we die to ourselves so that we can rise with Christ. Death is a very real, real thing. And God is saying that it's through the death of Jesus Christ, through his death, that we receive the inheritance the will that the Lord set up for us to have, for his children to have, it comes through the death of Christ. And so God has been using blood since. God loved us enough to experience voluntarily the death of his son on our behalf. Christ volunteers himself to be crucified so that we can be right with God. So it takes blood and death for that to happen. Continuing on in verse 23. It says, Thus it was necessary... Don't miss that. It was, it was necessary. There's no other way. And we're going to spend this section right here, we're going to spend a, a little bit more time on this next week, actually. But it says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Again, everything that happened in the Old Covenant was a copy pointing to the heavenly things. He's already had this conversation with us. He's already taught through this. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not tabernacles or temples made by man, designed by God, but which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Again, Jesus has gone before us through death into heaven. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For, when he would have, uh, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifices of himself. There's a, a couple really big things we see in here. That he's the mediator, that what Christ has done, it not only covers those that were, that were after the new covenant, but also covers those that were submitted to the first covenant. We see that in the beginning part here. But then we're also seeing that this is once and for all. And there are, there are faiths out there, there are religions out there that believe that when we take communion or when we work at that, we're re-crucifying Christ. And this is speaking ex ex like ex the exact opposite of that. That Christ was crucified once. He was crucified once. When we, when we take communion, when we do the Last Supper, it's, a, it's in remembrance of what he's done, which we will do later today. But it's not to re-crucify him. He doesn't need to be re-crucified. It's once for all, and we'll spend even more time talking about that next week. Verse 27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once. Now, I want to pause there for a second. 
this is the cliff notes, and this is a spoiler alert. You're going to die. I, I, want, like, I don't mean this to be like some kind of what about Bob like moment of sadness, right, where it's like we're all dying, and we don't need to think about that. But also, we, we need to realize that, that death is going to happen. You will die at some point. But what he says here, what's crazy, is he says we're appointed. Man is appointed to die. There's a time for us to die. Now, this is, this is going to be hard, and I don't have time to flesh this out completely, but, but who makes that appointment? It's not like us. Hey, I want to die on this day. No, that's not our choice. That appointment is the Lord knows it. In fact, Psalm 139 says that, and in your book, O God, they were all written, the days. The days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. So before I even existed, before one day showed up, God, you wrote in the book of life how many days I have. So as surprising and as painful and as horrific as death is for us to experience, it is not a confusion to God. It's not like God went, oh, I forgot to watch him today. Ugh. Lord knows. He knows when. And it's not the enemy. It's not cancer. It's not anything else. It's the Lord knowing when it's going to happen. And as hard and as difficult as death is, if we saw it in light of Christ, we wouldn't be afraid of it. We wouldn't even be, death would not be something that we fear from, ignore, put off. Instead, in some ways, as, as, and, and hear me on this, in some ways we'd be excited for it because we see that it is the passageway to his kingdom. In no way am I advocating taking your life or putting yourself in danger so that it comes sooner. I'm saying is that, that we should be living our lives in a way that we recognize that death is coming. It's okay. It's going to happen. And he says the next very sobering part, not only is death going to happen, but after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear, will appear a second time, not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So not only is death eminent, two things we can know for sure, death is eminent and judgment is as well. The scriptures are very clear about that. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.12 says this, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and so death spread out to all men because all have sinned. And through one man we can receive righteousness and that's through Christ. Death is going to happen. In fact, he's, he's, he's saying it in a really good way. That Christ died so that he could go ahead of us. And there's one word in this text that just radically transformed the way I think. Like drastically transformed the, the way I think in the last couple, couple weeks as I've been studying this. It's this one word. See right at the end here he says in verse 28, he says, So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. Okay, he's coming again. Jesus is coming again and he says this. He says not to deal with sin. I've already done that. I already paid for sin in the crucifixion. That's been taken care of. It's done. Your sins that you did last night, your sins that you do a week from now, the sinfulness that you continue to go back to again when you are submitted to Christ, it's been taken care of. And you can worship Christ with a clear conscience like we were talking about two weeks ago. It's been taken care of. But then he says, but to come, but to save those who follow him. I didn't say that, but that would work. To save those who have submitted their life to Jesus. That's true, and that would work here too. To save those who attend church more than 50% of the time. That could work here too. To save those who, who 
got baptized at seven years old. That could work. To save those that got baptized at seven years old. That could work too. He doesn't say any of that. You know what he says? He throws one word in there that has absolutely just rocked me. For those who eagerly wait for him. Now, if I think back to that bench in Walmart at 11 p.m., there was no eagerness in me for God. In fact, in fact, if I really think about it now today, I know what was going on in my heart. I didn't want my girls to raise up, to, to grow up without a father because I didn't believe God could take care of them without me. That's really what it comes down to because I didn't trust God to recognize that if this was my appointed time, that he has the best interest of my kids more than I do. That he's a better father than I ever could be. Those who eagerly wait for him. Man, the Lord was gracious to confront me on that bench in Walmart seven years ago. And I hope he does the same to you today. If in a moment you found out that a week, a month, a year from now, that it was your time, would you be eager? See, there's so many life things happening right now. People are getting married. Babies are coming. They're all good things. It's like, man, Lord, I want you to come, but can you, can you come after I get married? Because I really, really would love to have that. Or I want you to come, but can you come once I've been a grandparent? Once I've done this, like, we, we all have these really good things. But at the, at the end of the day, if we're really honest with ourselves, we want those things more than we want Christ. And that's what this text is saying. As scary as death is, as scary as blood is, and seeing, seeing that, that through the crucifixion, through the blood of Christ, we can be holy. And he says he's coming back for those who eagerly wait for him. Now, I want to be really clear. Some of you, you're not that eager. That doesn't mean he's going to be like, well, I thought you were going to be eager, so I'm out of here. That's not how it works. But if we actually allowed ourselves to feel this, it would change the way we live our lives today. Think about it. I I have four kids. Uh, I have a nine-year-old, seven-year-old, almost four, and almost two-year-old. And you know what's amazing is they still, and I, I know that this may change at some point, but they still, when I get home, even if I'm only being gone an hour, you know what they do? They come running to the door, Daddy! And they come hug me. And I'm telling you, there's nothing more like Ego building than, and confident building than having little people just love you, right? Like in spite of your own fault, failures. And I know that maybe there's a someday where they'll be like, oh, hey, Dad, good to see you. You know, back to whatever they're doing. And, and the, the truth is, I'm afraid that most of us will, will view that with Christ. Oh, hey, Jesus, cool. Maybe some of us are even going to be a little disappointed. Like, ah, Jesus, I wanted to graduate first. I had this plan. I had my 10-year plan out. This is what I was going to do. I was going to do lots of great things for you, as if that's more important than being with him. Those who eagerly wait for him. Is there any eagerness in your life? Any at all? You know, Jesus gives a parable, and he talks about this, this feast that's happening, this wedding feast. And if you've ever, I get to do a lot of weddings, but if you ever taken part or been to a wedding, there's a lot of details that get planned into the, this one day. In fact, a ridiculous amount of details that get planned in this one day. This is my conjecture. This is my own thinking, but this is just, this is just I'm going to run off with the parable that Jesus had said. Right now, Jesus is in heaven preparing a feast for us, his church. He's the bridegroom getting everything ready. He's picking the right flowers. Ooh, not this one. Oh, I know, I know this child. They, they love the lilacs, so I'm going to put them right here for this table. I can't wait. Oh, I'm going to set them right next to this person because they don't know each other yet, but they're brothers and sisters, and I saved them both, and I can't wait to feast with them. 
And he's literally, he's, he's moving everything and he's getting it all ready. Why? Because he's anticipating. He's excited to be with us, his bride. How ridiculous is it for us to be like, oh, cool, I'm getting married today. Thanks for doing all this prep, Jesus. I mean, it's good you saved me. No, we're going we're gonna to be in that time. Whatever your eschatology is, when you meet your appointed time and you stand before the Lord and you experience a judgment that you won't pay the penalty for because of Christ's blood, you're not going to be thinking about, oh, Jesus, I wanted, I wanted roses. No, you're going to join in with the song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I get to be in the presence of a God who created me and knows me and loves me. Guys, there should be some eagerness in this. Not because I'm just up here excited, but because it should rock our worlds. We should recognize that the amount of time and energy we're spending to try and retire on a vapor of a life is foolishness. It's foolishness. Don't save, retire, that's great, okay? But don't let that be your purpose. Goodness gracious. Our, our reward is in heaven. We have an inheritance that came through the death of Christ. And I don't care what I get in this world. It compares nothing to every spiritual blessing that I get through him. There should be an eagerness in us, an excitement. And if there isn't, then ask the question, why? Why? For me, I believe that I was a better father than God. It's not bad for me to want to spend more time with my wife. I love it. I love her. It's not bad to want another date. But the instant she becomes the reason why I live, I've made her God, and she is a crummy God. Just like my kids are crummy gods. Your career's a crummy God. Your retirement, your house, everything that we spend energy on that we have, I get it, we have like to live, we're going to spend energy and time. Some of you right now, you've made your education. You're like, all you can think about is it's dead week and you've got finals coming and they're just looming over your head. And you're like, I just want to skate right into summer, right? But you've, you've allowed those to become more important. Because if I get a B instead of an A or a C instead of a B, then I don't get this. And, and I've already made all these plans as if your plans really are going to come to fruition the way you want them to. Jesus is about sanctifying you and growing you. Look, Job, I, I, don't, I don't know how he did this. The winds come and destroy Job's house where his kids are all in, all 10 of them, gone. And Job's response, well, Lord gives life and the Lord takes it away. Now, I, I assume there's probably some more emotions that was in that. I really do. But he was focused. His, his value was in the Lord. Hey, the Lord wants me with him. It's this way. I, one scholar said this way, and I'm just going to read his quote because it's fantastic. He says, says, it ought to be a daily disappointment when our Lord does not come. Right? We should be disappointed. Ah. And hear me on this. Not just, like, you know what? This is just my own pet peeve. There's a lot of well-seasoned, smarter people around me that are, that are, are further in age than me. And, and one thing I see in them is a, is a focus, a laser focus where they recognize that, you know what? Everything that they've worked towards in this life I mean, it's good, it's great, but it doesn't really satisfy. And so there's a more focusedness of like, Lord, come. Lord, come on, come today. And it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a cynicism, you know, and also like a, a hopefulness or recognizing it. Like Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. I've tried it. I've looked for everything. It's, it's just vain, vanity, all of it. See, I think for us, a lot of times when we get excited about Jesus Christ when we're driving down Eagle Road, oh, Jesus, would you just please come? This road is horrible, right? Like, 
Like we, we look at our, our present circumstances and go, oh, this sucks. I'd rather be in heaven. When as good as it can be here, it pales in comparison to what it is with Christ. I was talking with Danny this week and we were studying um, together and he was telling me about, you know, it's, it's interesting when you try and relate the excitement and the enthusiasm of being in the presence of Jesus. He's like, I go to thinking about like when I was a kid and going, waking up for Christmas morning and the anticipation or, or when you're getting ready to go on this fantastic vacation, you just can't sleep the night before because you're, you're there or, or with your wedding night or whatever. Like all these things that you're super, super excited. He's like, it's all of those together and then some and we have no way to cognitively understand it. And yet we keep digressing to these things here. We keep chasing these things here as if they're going to give us the satisfaction that that is going to have. Scholar goes on, he says, it ought to be a daily disappointment when our Lord does not come instead of being, as I fear it is, a kind of foregone conclusion that he will not come just yet. So many of us aren't focused on the fact that he is coming. We aren't pleading, Jesus, show up now. And not just when life is difficult. Like, ah, I don't want to do these finals. Just show up now. That's not it. Man, this wedding day is the most amazing experience ever, Lord. But if you show up today, I can't wait for that wedding. I can't wait to be the bride for you because that is, that is where it's at. Another uh, scholar says it this way. He says, this eager expectation of Christ is simply a sign that we love him and believe in him authentically. There is a phony faith that wants only escape from hell, but has no desire for Christ. That does not save. And it does not produce an eager expectation for Christ to come. It would rather that Christ not come for as long as possible, so that it can have as much of this world as possible. But the faith that really holds on to Christ as treasure and hope and joy is the faith that makes us long for Christ to come. And that is the faith that saves. So I urge you, turn from the world and from sin and to Christ. Take him not just as your fire insurance policy, but as your eagerly awaited bridegroom and friend and Lord. May we be a people that literally jump off the bench, knock a glass dish onto the tile floor because we're so excited to see the Lord walking through that door. May we be a people that wrap our arms around him and hope we can't squeeze any harder, never let go because we're so excited to be in his presence. May we be a people that are so eager for the Lord that the world just doles. That we just see that the world is, like this world around us and these, these cares, and they're, they're important and that's great and, and God's graciousness allows us to take part in these things, but they pale in comparison to being with the Lord. There are present day implications to this thinking. If you were eagerly anticipating the time with the Lord, you'd recognize that there are people around you that you've already begun relationship with, that you will have relationship with for an eternity. So the people that you're around that are submitted to Jesus Christ, you guys are in relationship forever. That would change the way we interact with one another. We would, we would be more intentional to love and care, quicker to forgive and to seek clarity, more relentless at sitting still instead of running when it gets difficult. It would have implications in our finances. We would store up, not for ourselves, but for the kingdom of God. Look, I, again, save, and I'm not, this is not a, a money thing, but it saddens me so much that so many people spend so much time trying to make enough money for their kids when their kids grow up and do the same thing for their kids and no one ever lives presently. It would change the way that we dream and hope. It would change our pursuit of vocations. We would stop letting jobs dictate our future and we'd submit to the Lord in everything despite how much sense it does or doesn't make to the world. 
And I get it. Oh, you look at me like, oh, you're a pastor. You have to say this. You're just being really literal. But guys, this is, I'm confident that if you submitted your life to the Lord, whether you are eager or not, he is going to welcome you in. But as an earthly dad that's a really imperfect father, I can tell you, I get a lot of joy out of my son running up and saying hi. Even when he says bye, although he used to say die when I left. Die. I was like, okay, we'll figure that out, right? <laughs> He'll figure it out. It's okay. Men's joy, and I'm an imperfect father. I can't imagine God who literally, right before he talks about these days, he talks about being woven together in the inner places. God literally didn't assembly line you. He's like, oh, okay, I'm going to make Bren. He's going to get a receded hairline at about this age. That's okay. That's perfect, right? Because this is exactly the way I'm going to make him. I'm going to make him. He's going to be this way. And oh, I can't wait. And then at the feast, I've got a place that the Lord's like, hey, I went ahead and I prepared this for you, Bren. I'm so excited to be with you. Let's celebrate. Come on. God is anticipating that. You know, we're going to take communion. And you know what Jesus does at the, at the table with his disciples right beforehand? He says two things. One is he encourages them as long as they can, as often as they'd like, redo this in remembrance of him. But he says, I will not partake of this until we are in my kingdom together. Jesus is waiting. Jesus is eager. He says, I want to to be in, in feasting with you. I want to hang out with you in my kingdom. I want you to be free of those fleshly bodies that keep making poor decisions because my strength, my spirit is stronger and I want you to feel the freedom that you were born, you were created to feel. And not just as some emotional high, but as the reality of forever. We're going we're gonna to take communion. The ushers are going to pass it today instead of you guys getting up. And, and I want to just encourage you, if you, this communion is one of those things that we do as, as followers of Jesus that profess and believe that he has, he has come and for, forgiven our sins and therefore we have submitted ourselves to him as Lord. And so we have this bread and this juice to, to relate to us in a way that we can remember what he's done. In fact, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, that's where, that word remembrance is actually where we get our word amnesia. So in essence, he's saying, do this and don't, don't forget of me. And you know what's crazy? Is I think the reason why most of us aren't eager is because we've forgotten. We've forgotten the miracle it is to have him as our king and Lord. We've forgotten the beauty it is to be able to stand righteous before God in spite of who we are. When you take communion, you're proclaiming not only that Jesus had to die for you, but that you believed it was the good thing for him to do. You're acknowledging that your sins took part in those beatings and that brokenness. And your sins took part in that blood that was spilled. And you're remembering what he's doing. But the the best part, the thing that I just want us to focus in on, the most amazing part about this is that Jesus also tells us to hope not in what he's just done for us, but hope in what he's going to do. And this text right here, this one word in all this text, this eagerly word, he's saying, eagerly wait for me. Eagerly anticipate me coming. And so when we take communion, not only do we look back at what he's done for us, but we look forward to what his promises are, of what he's going to do in completing us. And guys, Jesus is eager to meet you. Let me, let me say this as clearly as possible as this is getting passed out. Jesus is eager to meet you in spite of what you did last night. He's eager to meet you in spite of how insecure you are. He's eager to meet you despite how much you may fear meeting him. If you've submitted your life to Jesus, if you've given your life to him as Lord and Savior, he is literally 
placing a spot at the table for you. And it's not, there's no like kids table, adult table at this feast. We're all a part of this, this wonderful feast that Jesus is holding out on. He's like, I want you to do this as often as you want, but, but man, I can't wait to do this with you. In first service, we had um, someone that just was an impromptu baptism. They emailed me this week, said, hey, I came to faith a little, under ten, a little under a year ago, and I know it's time for me to get baptized. And so we did baptisms in first service. And I, I can't help but think there are, are so many ways our present life would be different if we lived with the eagerness that Jesus was coming again. And for some of you, again, I'm just going to, we have it here. I have towels. It's warm. And, and some of you here need to leave with wet clothes. And again, maybe none of you have. Maybe it was just Megan in first service, and that's fantastic. But if you've been holding out on this, maybe it's time you eagerly step in to be crucified with him so that you can walk in the newness of life with him as well and get baptized. Jesus took the bread before his disciples and he says, this is my body. It'll be broken for you, bruised, beat up, whipped, bloodied for you. Take this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus, in an incredibly profound way, he quotes, he quotes Moses in the first covenant. Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord is commanding you to keep. And Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. He says, this is my blood, my blood that is spilled for you. And Jesus doesn't do it sadly. As, as crazy as it is, Jesus eagerly walks to the cross because he knows that he gets to eagerly greet us in his kingdom. He says, this is the blood of my covenant. It was spilled for you. Yes, Bren, your sins spilled my blood. Yes, Bren, your death that you walked in is what has caused me to go on this cross, which is, is why I'm walking willingly to this cross. But Bren, this blood covers you. And I can't wait to drink with you in the feast that I'm preparing beforehand for you by name that I spent time literally weaving you together in your mother's womb and I cannot wait. I am so eager to do this. And so when we drink, and we not just drink as a formality, forgetting what he's done for us, losing sight of what he promises to do in and through us, Instead, would we drink with the hope and the eagerness of Jesus come tomorrow despite how many great things your grace has given me to do in the future, I gladly give every single one of those up so that I could stand and join in the harmony of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So drink this. This is my blood. It took something righteous and innocent to deal with the unrighteousness and sinfulness and guiltiness of us, Lord. And so, um, Jesus, I thank you for I thank you for enduring the cross. I thank you for counting it joy to endure the cross. I thank you for joyfully going to that cross that is such a horrible thing. But God, you did that so that I could be holy. You did that so we could have a clear conscience. You did that so we no longer had to follow the law on tablets, but instead you wrote the law on our hearts. God, you did that so that we could worship you, the only one worthy of worship. 
And so, God, I thank you, thank you, thank you so much for eagerly awaiting me. And God, I pray that you would help me to be more eager to see you. And Lord, if there's anything in my life, anything in my life that is in the way of that, God, I, I, I give you permission to just rip it away from me. I don't want my kids, I don't want my wife, I don't want my friends, I don't want anyone I come in contact to see themselves as more valuable than you. I don't want my life to seem more valuable than you. And so God, I pray that we would commit ourselves to not only remember what you've done for us, but literally sit in hope and and anticipation of you coming. God, I pray for more disappointment. I pray for more disappointment every time we wake up. Go, ah, you didn't come last night, God. Would you come again soon? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.